Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. All right, hey friends, glad to have you join us for the podcast. It's a a really good week to join in because if you were trying to be with us on the live stream on Sunday, it it did not go well. It kept coming and going. Uh, This technology stuff is just uh, quite a challenge. So anyway, I think we do pretty well for small town Oklahoma. Uh, As always, I'm very proud of the ministry that we do here. Um, And as always, this last Sunday, which you're going to listen to the message from, going by the Revised Common Lectionary, as I've said several times before, sometimes these readings go together very well, and other times not so much. This last week, uh, there were a lot of disparate messages. We had a passage from Deuteronomy dealing with giving of the first fruits and a heart of thanks, thanksgiving toward God. And then in Psalm 91, we had a, a great psalm of God's protection. Um, and then we went along to Romans where it talks about uh, the prerequisite for being saved. If you confess with your mouth that Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we talked more about what that phrase really means. And then finally, the last reading was Jesus being tempted by Satan and um, what that means for us, particularly what our relationship with the scripture needs to look like. So, Um, I hope all of it's an encouragement to you. If any part of the sermon bores you, just wait two minutes and it really changes direction. So um, I'll just give a general reminder that my general preaching style is not that I'm sussing out big ideas over the course of 30 minutes. It's that we're talking about a number of big things in relationship with one another, but it's more like scattershot. You know, I'm, I'm I'm not, you know, a sharpshooter with my preaching I'm, I'm more messy than that, so I'm always trying to make connections and connect the dots, and so I hope that's helpful to you as you're trying to construct or reconstruct or maintain a biblical worldview and where you fit into that. So God bless you as you meditate on God's Word with us. Uh, thank you for your prayers for this church as we continue to try to be faithful in the context of Nowata, Oklahoma. The Lord be with you. I was told many years ago of uh, an old movie before my time, can't tell you the name of it, the, the situation just really spoke to me. Um, there's a father, a farmer, sits down at a table with his wife and family, and the wife insists that they say grace, and as the head of the family, it's his job, but he's in a bad mood, and he says a prayer something like this, Father, I was the one who went out and planted the seed, and I weeded the bad weeds out, and I watered the good seed, and I've harvested, and now it sits on our table, but for some reason I'm supposed to thank you. Amen. Now, we all know that's a bad prayer. We all know that's a bad prayer. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to that prayer after we hear our first reading, but I just wanted you to keep that in mind as we hear our first reading. We've gone back to the King James Version of the Bible. It's harder to understand, so take a couple deep breaths, focus your brain. Let's see what we what the Lord says to us here. I'd welcome our first reader forward. Good morning. morning. Our first reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 26, verses 1 through 11, which you can find on page 320 in your pew Bible. Listen to the word of God. 
And it shall be when thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance, and possessest it, and dwellest therein, that thou shalt take of the first of all the fruit of the earth, which thou shalt bring of the land, that the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt put it in a basket, and shalt go into the place which the Lord thy God shall choose to place his name there. And thou shalt go unto the priest that shall be in those days, and say unto him, I profess this day unto the Lord thy God, that I am come unto the country which the Lord swore unto our fathers for to give us. And the priest shall take the basket out of thine hand, and sell it down before the altar of the Lord thy God. And thou shalt speak to and say before the Lord thy God, A Syrian ready to perish was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few, and became there a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians evil entreated us and afflicted us and laid upon us hard bondage. And when we cried unto the Lord God of our fathers, the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. And the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with great tenderness and with signs and with wonders. And he hath brought us into our, hmm, we got to stand by this place and hath given us this land and even a land that floweth with milk and honey. And now, behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which thou, O Lord, hast given me. And thou shalt set it before the Lord thy God, and worship before the Lord thy God. And thou shalt rejoice in every good thing which the Lord thy God hath given unto thee, and unto thine house, thou and the Levite, and the stranger that is among you. This is the word of God. So Deuteronomy, the whole book, is the last will and testament of Moses. He led the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt into, to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And then from there, through the wilderness for 40 years, uh, he sins in an unfortunate way. And God won't permit him to go into the promised land. However, the whole book of Deuteronomy is his blessing and instruction to them before they enter into this promised land. The land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, Susanna and I sat down each day this week and read the scripture readings for this week and every time she read that part about the land flowing with milk and honey she went mmm that sounds so good <laughs> and it was a good land that, that God brought them into and they're getting ready to go into it and Moses is saying when you go into it here's what I want you to do with the first fruits of your crops now this was in an agrarian economy this means everybody was farming growing crops of some kind and they would um, of course, use it to sustain themselves, and they would trade with each other and hopefully have a balanced diet. But um, the way that they were supposed to do this was in a way that acknowledged that God is the source of every good thing. Because the, the thing that's about to happen right here is they're going to enter the promised land, and the promised land is already filled by a lot of people who are very strong, many of them giants. And God is going to fight with them and fight for, fight with Israelites and fight for the Israelites. They're going to wipe everybody out who's there, and instead of having to build their own stuff, they're just going to inherit vineyards, crops, orchards, houses. They're going to inherit all of it. It's just going to be handed to them on a silver platter. And it's that gift that's going to allow them to grow these crops. 
So every year, whenever you've produced crops, they don't all yield on the exact same day. Thank you for humoring me while I pretend to be a farmer. I know I don't know what I'm talking about. But you have the first fruits that come out. They're the very first things produced. And it says, when you get those first fruits, those are not for you. You put them in a basket and you bring them to the place wherever the Lord puts his name to dwell. And that's a weird phrase, right? But the, that's a phrase you see all throughout um, uh, well, it begins in Exodus, and then when you read Judges, you see that the Lord puts his name in the place where the Ark of the Covenant dwells. So the Ark of the Covenant is originally brought to Shechem, and then Shiloh, eventually it rests in Jerusalem. And so it's saying, wherever the Ark of the Covenant is, wherever God's priests are, bring the first fruits of your crops there, and then recite these words. And I'm going to put them in Jeffrey Hick words, but it begins with, my father was a wandering Syrian. And who's it talking about there? It's not, we're not talking about, the, the person is not talking about their biological father. They're talking about their ancestor, Abraham. They're identifying, Abraham was my father. I am his child. He was a wandering Aramean, a, a wandering Syrian. Different translations have either, or it doesn't change anything about it. But then, says he was enslaved in Egypt. We're no longer talking about Abraham. We're talking about you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob slash Israel, and then you have his 12 sons and their descendants. And it's their descendants who were enslaved in Egypt. And it says, and you, you, Lord, brought them out of Egypt to a land flowing with milk and honey. It's reciting this whole story that happened hundreds of years before this point in history that we just heard about. And it's saying, when you come in with your first fruits, you recite this story and acknowledge that you are the beneficiary of all this stuff that came before. And then acknowledge God did all this good for you. God is the one who allowed you to plant. God is the one who allowed you to harvest. And yes, you might have put in a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, but nothing would have happened without God's blessing upon it. Nothing would have happened if not God's work for you and the goodness in your life. Now, here's, I hope, an easy question. Are we any different from them back then? Has God done any less for us? Absolutely not. Here's the problem. We are often entitled. I'll just speak for me. I am often entitled. There are things that I've worked really hard in my life for. There are things I put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into. There are things that I've I've agonized about and I've, I've deliberated about and I've planned around. There are things I put all kinds of time into. I put four years into a college degree that was not fun to get. I put three years into an awful college degree in Boston. I hated living in Boston. I often go through my life feeling entitled to the things that I have. I have a good life. I have a good life and I often feel as though I've earned everything good that I've got. The reality is I don't deserve anything good. I deserve nothing good. Every good thing that I have is from my Father in heaven. He has blessed me beyond measure because he is gracious, not because I deserve it. There is nothing you can do to put God in your, in your debt. Every good thing he has given you is not because you've worked hard, because you're smarter than other people, because you're better than other people. It's because he's gracious, and that's it. And when we assess our own lives, the way we assess it matters. If we look at our house our car, our kids, our, uh, our lives, our friends, as a byproduct of the good things that I deserve because I worked hard, then you're spitting in God's face. But if you see all these blessings and you say, God, you've been so good to me. 
I don't deserve any of this. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Then you begin to resemble the biblical portrait of how we ought to be. That's the main sermon I wanted to give out of this. If you have an entitled heart, I hope you feel convicted today and that your heart is melted to be grateful and gracious, thanking your Lord who has blessed you beyond measure. Now, the second sermon in this, and it's important. I don't preach on money a whole lot, but we're not an agrarian economy anymore. Some of us are still growing things. I love when I get some of Doug's tomatoes. They're delicious every year. But most of us are not growing stuff every year, but we're producing things. And whenever we get things, whenever we're producing things, is that ours or is that God's? It's God's. Now, God is gracious, and he lets us maintain a lot of it. But here the biblical portrait is whenever you get payday, you go and give to God first. And nothing's changed. When you receive payday, if it's God's, you gladly, eagerly give back to God. And I'm not saying you have to give to the church. If for some reason you just hate your church, I don't know why you're here, but if you just hate your church, don't give to the church. Give to the poor. Do we still have poor people in this world? Absolutely. But if you love your church, give to your church. I'm not going to lie to you and say that every single penny, I just began worship today saying we send some money to places I don't like. The vast majority of our money goes to great things. We're building great things here in Nowata. Don't you want to be a part of that? Many of you have increased your giving over the last few years, and it's made a big difference. A couple of you haven't. Some of you, it's because you can't, and that's, that's just fine. I'm not going to guilt trip you. Some of you can, though. And I want you to hear this sermon. You really should think about giving more. And it's not because the church needs it. It's because you need it. You need to have this relationship with the Lord that it's talking about here. You need to have a glad heart that knows that money's not yours. It's God's. And every bit that you hold on to is not because you deserve it, but because he has graciously allowed you to keep it. Do you see the difference there? Do I need to preach on it longer? If, if I don't need to preach on it, you need to be going, I get it. Okay, move on. But don't hear me, I'm not a pastor walking around with my hand out saying, oh, the church needs money, oh, we're going to have to close it. We're nowhere close to closing the doors, we're doing just fine. The problem here is that we have stingy hearts that, don't, that we hold on to stuff, we hoard stuff, and we don't like sharing with the Lord. And that is spiritual poison. So gladly let go some, that God would be glorified in your life. Let's move along in worship. Let's go to our, uh, a hymn of dedication. Dedicating not just our money, because it's not just about money, it's about everything in life. Take my life and let it be consecrated, number 399. On page 810 is Psalm 91. That's in your hymnals. The song response sounds like this. Grant us salvation, Lord, in trouble be our refuge. Let's sing that together twice and then we'll read. Grant us salvation, Lord, in trouble be our refuge. Once more. She usually gives us like a starting note and then we sing. Apparently we forgot the culture here. Okay. Together. Grant us salvation, Lord, in trouble be our refuge. 
those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, For the Lord will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence and will cover you with his pinions. Grant us salvation, Lord, in trouble be our refuge. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Because you have made the Lord your refuge, the Most High, your habitation. Grant us salvation, Lord, in trouble be our refuge. For God will give his angels charge over you to guard you in all your ways. Because they cleave to me in love, I will deliver them. When they call to me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. Grant us salvation, Lord, in trouble be our refuge. Is this a happy psalm or a sad song or a mad song? Song. It's happy. A lot of people really like this one. I've been in ministry a few years. This is oftentimes people's favorite psalm. Uh, I think for most people, the meat of it is verse 5. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day. Anybody ever wake up in the middle of the night and it's dark and you thought you heard a bump in the night and you're terrified? That doesn't happen to anybody else? No, everybody's looking at me going, okay, yes, I know that, yeah. I've had some crazy times in the middle of the night. Yeah, you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. The whole thing is that God will protect you. It's a conditional thing, and we'll get to the conditions. Um, let's look at verse 4. Uh, God will cover you with his pinions. I know I said that kind of funny, but a lot of people don't know what pinions are anymore. Do you know what opinion is? Not an opinion. Opinion. What's opinion? What's pinions? What's a tree? Nope. <laughs> See, I told you most people don't know what pinions are. It's, um, what, did somebody get it? It's wings. It's the, 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 the part of the wings where like the, the bones are underneath the structure. Whenever a, a mother hen is protecting her little, her little chicks, she protects them with her pinions. She covers them with her pinions, okay? And so that's the metaphor here. Hold on to it, pinions. I don't know when it's going to come in handy for you, but you're going to win Jeopardy someday because of that or something. 
pinions. So God, that's a relationship between us and God. He covers us with his pinions. He protects us. At the end of the psalm, um, it starts switching to the first person. Uh, because they cleave to me in love, I will deliver them. I will protect them because they know my name. Who is talking right there? God, the Lord. It switches voices. Uh, it's just talking about God. It's like a narrator. And then it's God's words to us. Um, uh, because they cleave to me. Cleave means cling, hold themselves to me. In love, I will deliver them. So that's the conditionality here. If you're not clinging to God, he's not going to protect you. Um, because they cling to me in love, I will deliver them. I will protect them because they know my name. He's saying, we have a relationship. Because this person knows and loves me, I will protect them. So the, the, the clear sermon in that is, uh, are you acting in any way that indicates that you love the Lord? Other than sitting here in a pew, are you going home and living in such a way that you are clinging to the Lord, that you cleave to him? If not, you probably should. Who here wants to be protected by the Lord? If you want protection, this is the deal. He wants people who love and serve him in their daily lives. If you think you're going to make it on your own, you're not. You're dead meat. You just don't know it yet. Um, the only other part I want to highlight is verse 11. For God will give his angels charge over you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up on their hands lest you dash your foot against a stone. This is scripture that Satan is going to quote to Jesus in our gospel reading today. And if you didn't know this, Satan can and does quote scripture. He just distorts it. So we'll come back to that in a little bit, but I just wanted to highlight here, we're going to hear that again. Okay, let's move along in worship. It's time for our third reading, and we're going to talk more about, you know, here it was, if people uh, know my name, if they cling to me, I will protect them. What are the conditions for having a close relationship with the Lord? What is the basic nature of our relationship with him that is salvific? So that's what this next reading is going to answer. Let's hear from our Romans reader. Our third reading is from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, chapter 10, verses 8 through 13, which you can find on page 1595 in your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. So what's the conditions? What's the condition of being right with God, having salvation? Here, say that again, Vicki. I didn't hear you. Yes, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the conditions. Right there. Simple, easy peasy, right? You just got to have... A strong feeling one day and say, Jesus, I confess you as Lord, and I believe that God raised you from the dead, and then you're saved, and you can just go about your life and keep sinning, right? Okay, no, thank you. Y'all have been trained well. You know that's wrong. Um, so it makes it sound simple, but the thing is, we have to actually believe it. It's not saying just lie. 
It's saying if you believe this stuff, if you confess that Jesus is Lord. Well, what does Lord mean? It means boss. He's in charge, not me. So if you say Christ is Lord and then you keep trying to be the boss of your own life, you keep doing what makes right to your own head or your own heart, then you're a liar because he is not your Lord. He's some guy you like, but he's not your Lord. If he's your Lord, you do what he wants you to do, not what your heart wants you to do. Did I say that clearly enough? Did everybody understand what I meant there? Now, we live in a culture that says, listen to your heart. Guess what? Our culture is under the power of the evil one. It wants you to follow. Satan, he would be so happy if everybody would just follow their hearts because your hearts are corrupt. My heart is corrupt. If you want, the easiest way to be damned is just follow your heart. Listen to your heart. But if you want to be with the Lord, you have to listen to him and you have to acknowledge, I'm not the boss of my life. Jesus is. When you confess with your heart that Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. A lot of people just, yeah, of course, God raised him from the dead. We've been reading scripture readings from 1 Corinthians for three weeks now talking about what it means that God raised him from the dead. That's where our salvation is. That's where our resurrection is. If Christ is not raised, then there's no point in this religion. If you don't believe that Christ was raised from the dead, why are you here? This is the dumbest thing you can be doing. It is not at all connected to anything worthwhile in life because you're going to die like the rest of them and be just dead. There will be no resurrection. But if Christ is raised from the dead, then that changes everything. There's a, a preacher in New York City named Timothy Keller that I like quite a bit, and he says he often talks to people who say things like, I used to be a Christian, but then I got turned off and, and I'm not a believer anymore. And they'll give their life story, and he says, I always listen respectfully. And he says, I follow up with a simple question. What about that made you stop believing that God raised Jesus from the dead? And of course, the things that they lift up have nothing to do with that. They go, oh, the church is full of hypocrites, or I just don't see the point, or uh, stuff like this. He says the, the nature of being a Christian is, is not sitting in a pew or saying the Lord's Prayer or the Nicene Creed. That's stuff that flows out of the essential thing. And the essential thing is a confessional belief that God raised Jesus from the dead. And if you believe that, it has a huge claim on the rest of your life. It affects everything that you do. And if you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. It doesn't matter if you say the Lord's Prayer every day. It doesn't matter if you go to worship every week. It doesn't matter if you tithe to the church. You're not a believer. You're still dead in your sins. This is a high calling. It makes it sound very simple because it says it in two clauses. I shouldn't say the word clause. I learned that from English, eighth grade English. But in two little bits, it says, if you confess Christ as Lord and you believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It, it does not give justice to just how demanding that is. If you say that Christ is my Lord and God raised him from the dead, that changes everything about how you live, where your attentions, your loyalties, your affections, your hatreds are. And if your life hasn't been reoriented that way, it's because you might have recited those words, but you had no idea what they meant. Just one other thing to upset us a little bit. It says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Most Christians don't even know the name of the Lord. It's not, you're not going to find it printed in any Bibles. That's how powerful his name is. They stopped printing it so that heathens reading it wouldn't have access to it. But God has a personal name, and there's power in that name. And if you don't know it, you need to talk to me after worship, because you need to know the name 
I'm not going to broadcast it on Facebook for the same reason it's not put in the Bible. But there's power in the name, and if you want to know that power, if you want to be serving the Lord and knowing his name, you need to know his name. So, uh, hopefully that sticks in your crop. Don't go through your life not knowing the name of the Lord. It's important. Okay, anything else from this reading? We ready to move on? It's 11.52. I, think, I believe in you guys. We can do this. Um, if we go late, though, what happens? Nothing. We're just fine. Okay. Our gospel reading this morning is from the gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, which you can find on page 1434 in your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that, I, that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil, taking him up into an high mountain, shewed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Okay, there it was. It was quoting Psalm 91 there, if you didn't catch it. Verse 12. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil has ended all the temptation, had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. This is the word of the Lord. So part of the sermon on this one I already gave away, and that is Satan can quote scripture. We like imagining that Satan is just so evil that he can't do anything with the light. No, Satan loves messing with the light. He knows the whole Bible like the back of his hand, okay? I, I had a church secretary one time, not the one we got now said, uh, first one in church on Sunday morning is Satan. Satan is very comfortable in churches. He's very comfortable entering into the bodies and lives of, of holy people. He's very comfortable using God's holy word to distort you. We like to imagine that, oh, I can see it, you know. You ever hear uh, someone does something bad and someone says, oh, I just knew, I knew they were no good. You didn't know. Sometimes, you know, they're, they're, they're like a flashing headlamp you know that something's wrong a lot of times you don't know and a lot of times someone does something good oh i knew you had it in no you didn't we don't know nearly as much as we think we do we have confirmation bias okay we like to imagine that we got some kind of sixth sense that tells us when evil's around the corner no we do not the only thing that helps you identify evil is discernment discernment if something bears fruit for christ jesus it's good doesn't matter if the world hates it, doesn't matter if it seems mean or ugly, if it bears fruit for God, if it's in conformance with uh, 
conformity with his word, it's good. If it's not, doesn't matter how much worldly good comes out of it, doesn't matter how many people love it, it's evil. Jesus shows us the model of the strength that you and I have got to have. He is out of his mind fasting for 40 days. Can you imagine not eating for 40 days, just drinking water? In the wilderness, there's no air conditioning out there, okay? There was no air conditioning back then. There's no toilets. There's just you and the wild animals. It did say angels attended him in the Gospel of Mark. Even so, hasn't had food for 40 days, and that's when Satan comes to him, whenever he is out of his mind with hunger. He's tired, and he still has the strength to withstand the evil one. He comes to him with three tests that they may not sound tempting to you and me where we are, but you better believe they were tempting to Jesus. And he even quotes scripture at one point to convince Jesus it's okay. And all three times, Jesus refutes him with the correct use of the scripture. Jesus is the word made flesh. He doesn't make something up on the spot right then. He leans upon God's word as his weapon against the evil one. Nothing is any different for us today. God has given us his word to equip us for battle against the evil one. Let me ask you another basic, easy question. Is the evil one trying to trip you and me up? Absolutely. But if we don't have discernment and spiritual armament, we do not have a chance. That's the whole point of this Lenten season is to equip ourselves to go through hard times so that we too can be strong when we feel weak, so that we too can lean upon God's word when the evil one's coming to us trying to convince us to do something. Oh, it's okay. It won't hurt. Just a little bit. You know that voice in your head? Oh, I can give in just this once. Oh, it's not a big deal. Everybody does it. We act like kids are the only ones that give in to peer pressure and idiocy. Adults are just as susceptible. And if we do not prepare for the time of trial, we are not going to make it. Jesus set the standard, and then he equips us by sending us his Holy Spirit and his word and his church to equip us. And then the question is, are you letting the church, the Bible, and the Holy Spirit do their work upon you? Because most people, they're very familiar with this. Oh, oh, thank you. Stay at arm's length. You know, I would like to have a conversation with you from over there, but don't, <laughs> don't get in my space. Holy Spirit, you can come in and make me feel good every now and again, but don't actually change me. Bible, I'll, I'll read you every now and again for an inspirational quote, but I'm not really going to figure out all about you. Church, you know, I'll show up and smile at some people, but I'm not actually going to make friends here and spend time with these guys outside of church. Whew. You see the way that we keep people at arm's length, that we keep God's armaments at, at arm's distance so we can stay comfortable, stay how we want to stay there is no salvation in that god gives us these tools so that we can be changed the whole point here is change is transformation and god has leveraged everything for you to change you have to actively try not to be changed in order to not be changed that you just have to come and get the bare minimum and then get out of here as quick as possible and and don't do anything don't show up to bible study on thursday don't join the discipleship groups on wednesday don't don't call anybody in the church and have them over for coffee or tea don't volunteer around town with church friends. You know, these are things that we, we can be. Some of us are doing these things. We're stepping out, and what do you know? People are being changed in our discipleship groups. What do you know? People in our Bible study are really thinking on this stuff in ways they haven't before. But if you want to just remain dead in your sins, don't do any of that stuff. 
I don't feel good saying that. I want every person here to know the joy of being transformed into the image of Christ Jesus. When people keep the church at arm's length, whenever people are not reading their Bibles, whenever people don't have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, I'm not happy. That, that pains me. Because there's no way you have the comfort and joy in your life that I do in mine. And I want that for you. But it doesn't just happen. We Christians, we don't believe in magic. We believe in covenant. We have a God who made covenant with us out of love. He's shown us who he is. And he's shown us what he wants. So let's return the love that's been so freely given to us. Amen.